This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. I had a situation this week that gave me um, an opportunity to make some decisions about how I was going to think and react and function. So I was uh, in an Uber car, what day was it, Thursday? Thursday, and um, downtown Atlanta, I was heading up to Marietta to pick up a vehicle that we bought for City of Refuge. And I had just taken my glasses off and put my head back on, I was in the back seat and uh, and closed my eyes and and the driver yells, and I opened my eyes to see us about to T-bone a car that's come through the intersection, and we did. So, um, I don't, you know, so filters, right? So, my driver is an Uber driver. He's, this is a job for him, and he has some responsibilities with that job. And he has a passenger in the back seat, right? So, if you're the Uber driver, and you are in a wreck like this, pretty serious deal, and you have a driver, and you're okay, you're not hurt, and you have a passenger in the back seat, what's one of the first things you would do? You'd probably check to see if your passenger's okay, right? So, and I'm okay, but I, I did hit my head on the thing right here and got a little thing back, you know, whiplash thing, ended up, I felt okay right then pretty serious lick to the head but um but then through the afternoon headache got worse tightness soreness pain shoulders neck back so tracy knows all the stories about people who took a bump on the head and thought they were okay and six hours later succumbed right or dead so she insisted that i go get checked so on the way home i stop at the doctor in griffin and they checked me and uh, said, well, you've got to go to the emergency room and get a CT scan because you've got blurred vision and you've got headache. So I go over to Spalding and sit for six hours and do that. And, um, <clears throat> and it was pure misery. You know, I sat for two and a half hours in the uh, lobby and then they called me back and I'm like, yes, well, believe me, calling you back don't mean anything. I'm sorry, I forgot to silence my phone. So I got to sit in the hallway in a chair back there for another three hours and got the scan and they didn't see anything in my head. No, there was plenty in my head, but there was nothing wrong in my head. But I was diagnosed with uh, concussion and whiplash. So anyway, back to the driver. So his reaction when the accident happens is to start yelling about how it's the other guy's fault, the guy ran a red light, telling me, you're my witness, you're my witness. Um, Called his mother, he's on the phone with her for five minutes. Called his brother, he's on the phone with him. He's carrying on about how he can't believe how this guy can't drive, on and on and on. I can't find my glasses. I've just knocked my head. So I'm like, hey, bud, um, I'm not feeling that great back here, and I can't find my glasses. <laughs> you think you could help me see if they're up under the seat or whatever? Still never asked me if I was okay. You know, he just helped me find my glasses. 
So I sat there a few minutes. I'm right in the middle of busy intersection at Marietta Street and Northside Drive, right by Georgia Tech. And uh, I'm just sitting there, and people are going by, yelling, get that piece of junk out of the road, as if, you know, with the front end hanging off of it, uh, we can actually do that. So I get out, and I go over and sit down on the sidewalk, and um, then I get feedback from the other driver, the driver of the other car, and his... Of course, filter to think all the, about all this is it's the Uber driver's fault. He ran the red light and used all sorts of bad language and et cetera, et cetera. And then the police showed up about 40 minutes after the accident happened and, um, and, and told both drivers to get in their cars and to follow him. <laughs> it was really funny because the car I was in has, has the front end both fenders, the bumper, hood, hanging off of it, and this guy's driving it down north side, you know, following the cop. I'm sitting on the guardrail. They just left me, went out of sight, and I, I was just sitting there. And I guess the Uber driver never even told the police he had a passenger because I've heard nothing from any of them. All right, so I've got some filters here that I'm working through. <laughs> you know, I've got some some thought processes that I'm having to deal with. And um, the Uber people called me, got a report. The Uber insurance people called me, said they're opening up a claim on my behalf. I'm thinking, one call, that's all, baby. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a filter you got to deal with. Hey, well, well, you know, something could happen here. But anyway, we all uh, face situations daily, really, where we're required to give thought to a situation, to make a decision off of the situation. And as we know, it starts with thoughts, and then thoughts become thought patterns, and then we have to deal with the filters, filters that we're thinking through. This thing we talked about last week called cognitive bias, which is based on some experience from the past or a pattern of experiences, or your perception of, of things, uh, you might make decisions and there's, there's potential those p decisions could be wrong because of the filter that you're thinking through. So what are we going to do with all that? We've been looking at the life of the Apostle Paul, and today if I was going to give a title to this little talk, I would call it David, Paul, and You and Me. Because this is all of us, okay? This is the important people from the Bible that we talk about, such as David and such as Paul. But it's also about you and me just as much as it's about them. Because we're living our lives, we're carrying on relationships, we're doing business, we're making decisions, we're doing the things that everybody does in life. Therefore, we have to face the same things, and we have to make decisions the same way they did, and we have to deal with the filters that pop up. So in Acts chapter 11, um, we're not putting these first few scriptures up on the screen because it's just review, but in Acts chapter 11, verse 25, it says that Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Okay, Saul was a man who was determined, was on a mission to kill Christians. He was the guy who was standing there holding the cloaks of the people who stoned Stephen the evangelist to death. He then is going house to house. He's leading a crew. 
of law enforcement people having Christians arrested, thrown in jail, um, parents separated from children, potentially even having some executed because of their new faith. Then he's on his way to Damascus to carry on that work when, you know, a voice comes out of heaven, knocks him off his horse into the dirt, and he calls out and says, or the voice calls from heaven and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. So this is the big flip in Saul's life. This is his encounter with the Lord. This is his moment of conversion. This is his moment of salvation. Now, you and I may not have that dramatic of an experience, or maybe we haven't had any experience at all yet, but we all must have an encounter with Jesus. That's the starting point if you're going to live in the kingdom life. If you're going to expect to be able to access the proper filters to think through and make decisions through, you have to have an encounter with the Lord first. Again, if you haven't, if you don't want it, if that's not you, if you're not in a relationship with God, I can't help you. But if you are or if you want it, then we can walk through this process together. He goes down to Damascus, and a man named Ananias comes and tells him, I know what happened to you, prays over him. Saul was blinded when he was knocked off his horse, and now the blindness goes away, and he's able to see again. And he immediately launches out into public ministry, preaching and teaching, telling his story, and he's a total flop. He's a flop among the outsiders, and he's a flop among the Jews because he's not ready, because he hasn't walked through the process. And it's easy for us to look back at him now, and when you hear the name, the Apostle Paul, to automatically conclude, well, this guy's always had it together from the time that he landed in the dirt and heard the voice of Christ. He's a solid leader, apostle, and a giant of the faith, and you don't have to worry about him ever, that's not true. And it's never true for any of us. When we are born, and it's a perfect time to illustrate it this way, because we just had a new baby come into the world last night in my family, and anytime you have a baby come into the world, you have to start with the very basics in terms of training, taking care of, and making sure all needs are met for the baby, right? It's the same thing in kingdom life. You come into the kingdom, you have been born again. That's why Jesus used that. He used natural childbirth as the illustration for kingdom childbirth. You're born again, you're a baby. That's where you start. You start as a baby. I think too many, way too many, it's, it's probably scary to imagine the number of people who really had an encounter with the Lord, but they were pushed into things too fast. They were given big responsibilities in the church too fast. You know, I grew up in churches where if you had somebody who came in and they came down, they they had an encounter with the Lord, well, the church was always looking for um, people to fill positions in the church, right? Oh, well, you're saved now. How about working in the nursery? You're saved now. How about teaching Sunday school? How about being a youth leader? No, 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 no. Come on. Come on. Um, 
you can't throw babies in to take care of babies, right? That's, that's a big mistake. You'd, you'd be better off to not have nursery than to have an immature believer working the nursery. That's my very, very solid opinion. Um, I think that before, you, you know, you take the worship team up here. I've told them all along. I told Eddie. I've told Nick and JC. I don't want people leading ministry who either have no relationship with Christ or are very immature in their relationship with Christ. I just don't. I don't think it's appropriate. You have to grow up in the faith. You have to mature. So all this happens to Saul. Saul is a flop, and then he just goes away. They send him away, right? You're not ready for this. I don't think anybody who was associated with him knew what to expect in the future. They just knew that this guy is not going to be able to fulfill the role he's trying to fulfill right now. All right? So in Acts 11.25, it says, Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, we don't know how much time has passed here, but it's been a relatively extensive period of time. We know that because of all the stuff that we're told happens between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11. Uh, they jump right into the story of Peter when, Paul di when Saul disappears. All right? And then you get to Acts chapter 12. So when uh, Barnabas goes to get him, he gets him, and Barnabas is like this older, more experienced, more mature follower of Christ who is in a leadership role. That's why he goes after Saul. And then in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, it says, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, but now Saul is not flying solo. He's not going out on the street corners by himself and preaching and teaching and evangelizing lost people. He is following the leadership of an older, more mature, more experienced believer. And then in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, and, and look, Time is passing. Experiences are happening. Experience is being gained by Saul through this whole process. And in uh, verse 9 of chapter 13, all of a sudden it says, Saul, who was also called Paul. Right? First time it shows up, that his name is changing. There's not this dramatic statement that says he was Saul, but all of a sudden, because of what God did, past tense, in his life, he is now Paul. No, it's perpetual, it's this process. So that all along, he's been Saul of Tarsus. He was Saul when he was persecuting the Christians. He was Saul when he had his, his encounter with Christ. He was Saul when he tried to enter into the ministry unsuccessfully. He was Saul when he went back to his hometown of Tarsus. He was Saul when Barnabas went after him and brought him back. And now, all of a sudden, it is Saul who is... Little by little, it seems, starting to be known also as Paul. 
I don't think I even have to explain where I'm going with that because I think you probably get it already. See, Saul is becoming somebody he wasn't before. But it is the becoming that is important for us to understand. Because becoming is not an event that happens one time and it's done. Becoming is a process that happens day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year. And it has now been years since Saul met the Lord on the road to Damascus. It's been years of process of studying, of praying, of following, of working, of ministering, of learning. He has been walking steadily and faithfully in a long obedience in the same direction. And because of that, he's growing up into the man that God is preparing him to be. And he will do the most powerful ministry of anybody whose name we can call from the New Testament with the exception of Jesus himself. But he commits himself to the process. Saul, who is now also called Paul. But you know what? There's some that I'm sure are still calling him Saul. Right? Because that's what they know him as. He hasn't proven himself to be anything else. Or maybe it's just habit. They just automatically think Saul when they see him. You know, I had a nickname when I was young. It was Roby. Don't ask me where it came from. I'm not going to tell you. But anyway, there are still about 10 people in this world that every time they see me, that's what they call me because that's all they ever knew me about, knew me by. And, and so I got two names. I have my official name, but I also have that nickname. You know, in, in Saul's case now, he is becoming Paul. I don't know who started it. I don't know if he made the decision. I don't know if the Lord inspired it. I don't know if it came from the outside. But he is turning into a new man. That is the bigger picture. He's turning into a new man. So you move on from the book of Acts into Romans, and you get into now the real grassroots ministry of the apostle Paul. And now, and again, we don't know how much time has passed. The Scripture doesn't tell us, you know, three months later, a year down the road. It's really hard to tell. But if you line up the circumstances and the events, you know that significant time has passed. And it's now into years that he's been following the Lord. And he is now planting churches pastoring churches, continuing to do missions and evangelism work, discipling people, and writing letters to the church that we still reference today as having significant information for you and me. And over in Romans chapter 7, I brought this up last week, he gets into this discussion about the contrast, the comparison and contrast between Life under the law and life under grace. And this uh, subject in Romans 7 sets the stage for what I really want to talk about, which is the filter of guilt that starts in the first verse of Romans chapter 8. 
But we have to understand what he's talking about. What is the context in Romans 7? And he's saying that, you know, what Jews understand is life, living life by the law. God gave us the law. The law is pure. The law is right. And for thousands of years, this is what the people have had to live by, the law. Well, um, when you lived by the law, you had to always be coming and offering sacrifices as penance for your sins. Why? Because you were going to sin. And nothing's changed, by the way. You were going to sin, and we are going to sin. Now, before I go any further than that, that shouldn't give you just this tremendous sense of freedom. Well, I can just go sin, and, you know, it's all right. Jeff said so. You know, we're going to sin, so why not just go ahead and sin? This same Paul also said that just because we have grace, that doesn't give us a license to sin. He said, what does this mean? Does this mean that we should continue to sin because, so that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. Well, then how does it work? How does it work? If we have the law, but we're subject to break the law, we have to pay penance for breaking the law, then how does it work? Well, when Jesus showed up, something called grace showed up with him, right? Something called grace came along when Jesus arrived. And grace is the power that God possesses to withhold from us what we deserve, okay? So when you break the law, the Old Testament... Uh, result of breaking the law was that you were to be subjected to some sort of punishment. And a lot of times that punishment was death, depending on what law it was that you broke. When Jesus came, he brought grace through forgiveness. And you no longer have to carry a lamb or a bull or a dove into the temple. You don't have to bring that in here on Sundays or once a year or at festival or whenever to offer those sacrifices on an altar and have us light a fire and burn them and shed the blood of those animals so that you can gain forgiveness for your sins and so that you can receive uh, the necessary uh, penance or, or pay that necessary penance so that you can move on until the next time you sin, then you have to do the same thing all over again. Jesus brings grace, and He offers grace through forgiveness. We have the opportunity to repent. We have the opportunity to have that grace established in us and to make us clean one more time. So it's called life in the Spirit. He contrasts life under the law with life in the Spirit. I have to go back again. I'm sorry. I have to keep repeating this over and over and over. If you have not moved into relationship with the Lord, if you don't want that, if it's not for you, I can't help you because grace is not available to you. Grace is only available to those who have said, Lord, I surrender my life, I repent of my sins, and I accept you as Lord of every aspect of my life. Those are the only people it's available to. You know? You can be out there in the world and get in some trouble and be in a bad situation. You can cry out for God's grace to intervene. 
All right? If you are not a child, an obedient son or daughter of the Father, He has no obligation to give you the gift of grace at any point in time under any circumstance. His grace is for His own. And when we live our lives in the Spirit, we have ready access to His grace at all times. So after this lesson on the law and grace and life in the Spirit, Paul opens up Romans chapter 8 with these verses. Therefore, and that word therefore means because of what I've just told you about the law, about the Spirit, about grace, because of that, there is now no condemnation. Let's substitute that word with the word guilt. Okay? There is no condemnation, no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So let's go back to verse 1. There's no guilt. This is our topic for the day. Because here's what I know, without any doubt at all. There are a lot of us who think through a filter of guilt. It's guilt because of things that we did in the past that we know hurt other people, hurt ourselves, negatively impacted our children, negatively impacted our parents, did damage that we think was not fully recoverable, not fully fixable, not fully restorable. We did things that we know altered the course of our lives, turned our lives in a direction that involved along the way and continues to involve hardships that we would not have as part of our life experience had we not made those decisions. We're thinking through this filter of guilt about how we wounded people that we really loved and cared about, and now we can't go back and change it. We can't go back and take it away. And so often when we're thinking, these thoughts will come into our minds, and they're running through a filter called guilt in our minds, so that not only do we have the negativity of the situation that happened and the memory of it, but we're piling on to that guilt from our part of it. I know that if you were honest with me, and I ask everybody in this room who deals with that at some point in time in your life to stand up, that there, there are a few of you that would have to stand up. Maybe more than a few. 
I didn't ask you to, but there we go. There we go. Guilt. Thinking through the filter of guilt. The enemy absolutely throws a party when we do that. He absolutely loves it, rejoices. I have a feeling as much as anything that would satisfy him, make him happy, that knowing that many of us who are trying our best to follow Christ are filtering a percentage of our thought processes through the filter of guilt, I think that would make him very, very happy. And it's just not necessary. Paul says, there because you have access to grace through forgiveness. Because Jesus went to the sacrificial altar for you. You don't have to have that. In the, in the fourth verse, it talks about Jesus becoming sinful flesh. Why did he do that? He did it so that you and I would never have to do that again. He did it once and for all. And so the, the tragedy of it is that Jesus would go and pay that price, make that sacrifice, suffer like he did, become sin, hanging on a cross as a public spectacle and being spat on and smacked around and mocked and made fun of. And yet we would still allow the guilt that he went there to take away from us to be part of our lives. That's tragic. That's tragic. So why do we do it? Why do we do it? We do it because we have not been willing or committed enough to walk through the process of maturity and understanding God's grace through forgiveness. Because if we do that, He, as a byproduct, automatically will remove that guilt from our thinking. He will automatically do it. For those who are where? In Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Folks, if we can't, if we can't receive the truth that when Jesus paid the price for us, that he really did, he really did pave a pathway of freedom. See, because to live thinking through a filter of guilt is not freedom. That's a prison. That's a prison. We must embrace that the price he paid brought us freedom from that guilt. And we've got, and listen, this is, this is huge right here. You have, 
to make a decision. You have to make a decision. I'm going to believe, I'm going to accept, and I'm not going to allow guilt to be part of it. You've got to make a decision. I know there are places you go to church where they're going to say the answer is to run down front and fall on your face before God and pray and cry and repent and whatever. And that's good. I'm not discounting the power of that. But I'm going to tell you right now that although the Lord has the ability to and occasionally does just completely deliver people and set them free like that in one fell swoop in an instant in an altar service, that is just not the way He does it about 99.999% of the time. He requires obedience on a daily basis. He requires a solid commitment. He requires that we pay attention to His words, that we meditate on those words, that we do so prayerfully, and that we... Uh, after we know what he's saying, that we respond in strict obedience to those words. And if we do that, he will grow us up. We will become mature. And all of a sudden, we will realize, hey, uh, that guilt that I used to deal with all the time, I think it's going away. Or maybe it's gone, it's gone away. What happened to it? What happened to it was we made a decision for true discipleship. We stopped toying around with religion and with, with the Lord and with church. And we really made a decision for true discipleship. Those who are in Christ Jesus, those are the true disciples. Our world's in trouble, right? You know what uh, I believe when, when the Scripture, Paul again says that the earth is groaning. Groaning, right? Natural disasters, wars, terror, all these things are going on. The earth is groaning. All right, we can't leave it there. It's groaning. Why? It says it's groaning in anticipation of the revelation of the true sons and daughters of God. True. That's going to leave out everybody else that's not 100% true. Groaning in anticipation of the revelation of the true sons and daughters of God. Guilt. Paul says... There is therefore now no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. And today I'm going to make a decision, I hope you'll make it with me, that I'm going to believe what Paul said. I'm going to believe it. I mentioned how some of us carry guilt because of things we did. Some of us carry guilt because of things we didn't do. Things we didn't pay attention to. Things we should have intervened in. Things we should have recognized and we didn't. And it, it hurt us and it hurt other people. You know, this, this business of regret, of guilt, it's a two-way street and it can dominate your life. And if it dominates your life, it will dominate your life at the expense of victory in Christ Jesus. Because you can't live both. You can't live both. So now I said, if I was going to title this talk, it would be David, Paul, you and me. Let's bounce back to David for a minute because I got to reference Psalm 51 that I uh, opened up the service last week with and talked some about. If you ever, some of y'all may remember a while, maybe a year or two ago, when I... Uh, spoke about David for like 12 weeks in here. 
every Sunday we were talking about David. The reason is because David is the best example I can find in the Scripture of how to just deal with regular life. You know, just the problems of regular life. Because I deal with stuff, you know, all the time. And so do you. And so did David. So what that he was a king? So what that he was a military general? So what that he, uh, you know, had all these uh, flamboyant experiences in life? When it boils down to it, he was a man who dealt with stuff that men deal with. He was a human being. And he, he doesn't mind sharing his story with us. And he do, does it in a lot of different ways. But here is how David handles guilt. Okay? Because guilt is the subject here today. In Psalm 51, David has just come off of huge mistakes in his life. Things that could create, and for a little bit there, did create tremendous guilt in him. It almost crushed him. David is the king. David is a military leader. David is a married man. Okay? And one day he sees a woman across on the rooftop of the next building bathing. And all sorts of wrong thoughts and wrong ideas come into his head. The minute David saw the woman walk out and knew what she was about to do, he should have turned around and run. But he didn't. He allowed it to set up. He, he allowed those thoughts to come and develop. He went from a thought to thought patterns. And then out of the thought patterns, he started to formulate a plan because he thought, I've got to have this woman. So his plan is, because her husband is in the, in the military, is that he's going to bring her to the palace. He's going to have her for his own, and he does that. And she becomes pregnant, and now he's got a big problem. Right? Which leads to the next decision, which is, I've got to make it look like it's her husband's child. This is, this is complex stuff, right? This is ugly stuff. i got to make it look like it's her husband's child. So he sends out the order that her husband, Uriah, be brought back from the battlefield to spend some time at home. But Uriah is so committed to his king and to his country that he won't go in the house. He sleeps at the doorstep and begging the whole time to go back to be with his army. So David says, send him back, put him on the front line so that he'll die in battle. That's the solution. And that's what happens. So he has an adulterous affair with a married woman, and he's a married man. He tries to cover it, and then... He has her husband set up to be killed. And Bathsheba, the woman, has the baby, and it's David's child. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and lays out a story. Hey, what would you do, king, if you knew about someone 
who's one of your citizens here, who did this? And David said, oh, that would never work in my kingdom. That person's going to be punished to the last letter of the law. And Nathan looks at him and says, well, that person is you. That person is you. I know what you did. Well, David has a choice now, right? He has a choice. He can make things worse. He could have had the prophet killed. He could have made any decision he wanted to. He has total control as the king to do whatever he wants to do. And one of the most devastating things he could have done was just to allow guilt to set up as a filter in his mind and to start thinking through that filter and to live out his life thinking through a filter of guilt. But he says no. He decided to choose a filter of repentance. That's number one, filter of repentance. Okay, so before I read this, his prayer of repentance, I want you to contemplate what decision you'll make. Because we already know a bunch of you in the room are dealing with this guilt, this, uh, guilt filter. Okay? It starts with repentance. It starts with saying, Father, I have been wrong. I have been disobedient. I have been rebellious, and I repent. It doesn't start anywhere else except right there. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. To choose guilt as a filter to think through, is to raise guilt up as a literal idol above God. Because if you say you trust God, but if you choose to embrace guilt, you are actually worshiping the guilt more than you're worshiping the God you claim to serve. That is worthy of repentance. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Next to verses 10 through 12. A filter of dependence. That's number two. That's not number one. That's number two. What's number one? A filter of repentance. Number two, dependence. It says, create in me a pure heart, O God. This is a daily thing. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's acknowledging that he must now have total dependency. We can, we can repent for our rebellion. We can repent for our guilt. We can repent for allowing it to occupy a space in our minds. But if we turn around tomorrow and decide on something other than total dependence on the salvation of the Lord, which is a daily thing, we will never be victorious. Filter of repentance and a filter of dependence. And of course, in verses 16 and 17, the filter of obedience. 
You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Contrite, contrition, is to live our lives in, in, in the spiritual sense perpetually bowed. To be contrite means that you would be so remorseful, so submissive, that you would actually bow yourself before the person that you're asking forgiveness from. True act of humility before God. True act of surrender. He's not asking for sacrifice anymore. You know, I mean, sometimes we do good works to try to pay penance for our sin. Sometimes we put extra money in the plate to try to pay penance for our sin. No. What we have to do to gain forgiveness for our sin is to come before the Lord with a contrite heart, to bow before Him in our spirit, to ask Him perpetually for His forgiveness, to receive His salvation on a regular basis, to walk in dependence with Him after our repentance, and then to obey His words. To be, to have a broken spirit before God is to accept the fullness of His Spirit in us. His Spirit is full and complete, and it takes the place of our broken spirit. But our spirit must be broken so, decisions, decisions, right? What do I want to do? What do I want to do? I know the level to which guilt has an impact on me. What am I going to do about it? Just live with it? Just live with the guilt? Right? I've... Uh, been around some people who were dying and I've been around a few people who were dying who expressed extreme guilt because life's over life on earth is over and I did things I shouldn't have done. I didn't do things I should have done. I've hurt people. I've wounded people. I've left a path of destruction. I, And they, they leave this world dealing with a spirit of guilt. Condemnation. Self-condemnation. I wish I'd have done things differently. I've known people that probably the most appropriate word you could have inscribed on their tombstone would be the word regret. I've had some relatives that that would apply to. Regret. Because it characterized their life in their latter years. When they were young, they didn't care about it because they didn't see it coming, right? But then they got older and life is running out. And here comes the regret. Here comes the guilt. I don't know about you, but I don't want that. <laughs> I, I don't want that at all. I don't want to be lying on my deathbed and dealing with some guilt. Well, do you know the time 
to handle that is now and not then? Right? The time to deal with it is now. So my challenge to you is repent. And after you've repented, begin the daily process of dependence. And after you have repented and you're living in dependence, make sure that you're exercising a long obedience in the direction of which he's calling you. Father, I thank you for the life of David. I thank you for the life of Paul. And I thank you for every life that's in this room. And I thank you for the lessons that you've taught us concerning the opportunity we have to live in grace, perpetual grace to be forgiven, the opportunity we have to approach you every morning and for you to establish new mercies in us, the opportunity to live with a sound mind and a steadfast spirit, for the opportunity to do away with guilt by responding in process to what you've called us to do. So I pray for boldness over everybody who's here, a boldness to make a decision, a decision that they're not going to live with guilt. They're going to receive your grace. They're going to live in dependence and obedience to you. I pray over the sick, for those who are struggling in whatever way, um, people who are struggling financially, people who are struggling in relationships with depression, all the problems that come in life, but my prayer for them is that you would intervene in a way that would help them to know they have access to you and that your peace that passes all understanding can cover their lives no matter what problems they have or circumstances are going on. I pray for JC and baby June this morning. You would continue to strengthen them, make all things to go well as they prepare to come home. And... Um, we just give you thanks. We offer a prayer of thanksgiving this morning for a healthy birth, for new life, and for the way that you reveal yourself every time that happens. We love you. We bless you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.